you picked a great time to come because this is uh, such an incredible passage of Scripture. I was telling somebody, as, uh, I think Thursday night I was visiting with someone after I'd been working on this, and so much time I've spent in Hebrews chapter 6, which is where we're going to be this morning. But so much of the focus for me has been on that first part of what does he mean by, is it impossible that they fall away to renew them? You just forget the richness of, of the rest of this passage. And so I think you're going to be blessed today. So if you haven't been with us, we tackled this, started tackling this three weeks ago with what does it mean? By if they fall away, it's impossible to renew them again in repentance. So we, we dealt with that. Then two weeks ago, we came back and dealt with the question of, well, does it mean if they fall away, can they lose their salvation? And so we, we, we dealt with that. And then somebody had the question, well, if you can't lose your salvation, but you can fall away, how does that affect rewards? And so we dealt with that last week. So if any of those of your questions, go to YouTube. You'll find it, right? It's there. I have one more question I just want to deal with more of really quickly because I, I want to get on and finish up the passage today. And, uh, but it is a question. I probably should have dealt with it a little bit more directly probably two weeks ago. And that is this. What about people that you've known who have made a profession, they've walked with Jesus, you've seen it in their life, and then they turn their back and they kind of come to this point of just just denying Christ, renouncing Christ, what's, what's, what about them? Were they, were they never saved what, or somehow are, you know, what's going on? And, and, you know, obviously to me, the first question is, and it kind of comes back to the issue that we dealt with, and that is, what is it that brings salvation? Salvation does not come from praying a prayer. It does not come by going forward, jumping through a hoop. Salvation comes through putting your faith and trust in Jesus alone, right? That's something that happens in someone's heart. And so I truly believe if they've done that, they, they belong to Jesus. And if they haven't, now obviously, are there people who have kind of jumped through the hoops but have really never come to put their faith totally in Jesus? The answer is yes, right? Will that somehow play out? But here's the other side of that coin. And that is that so often what we see, when we see somebody walk away, we see this drift, we see this, this coming to this point of renouncing Christ, which you have to remember, it's a snapshot in somebody's life. For instance, if the last picture we had of Peter was in Caiaphas's backyard saying, I've never known the man, what would we have thought? And yet, that wasn't the end of the story, right? God was still working in his heart. And so often what we see today is not the end of the story. I, I love 2 Timothy because Paul reminds Timothy, the Lord knows those that are his. And I think the whole heart of the book of Hebrews is that whom God loves, right? He, he's going to, those that know him, there's going to be discipline. We often can't see that on the outside. So continue to pray, continue to love, but just know that maybe the last piece of the story hasn't been written. And, and so that God is, is also at work there. So, Tonight, or today, wherever we're at, 
we're going to start with verse 9. Beautiful passage. We'll read down to the end of the chapter, so if you'll follow along with me, that'll be great. But beloved, we are convinced of better things concerning you. The things that accompany salvation, though we are speaking in this way. For God is not unjust so as to forget your work and the love which you have shown towards his name and having ministered and in still ministering to the saints. And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end so that you will not be sluggish but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises." For when God made the promise to Abraham, since he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply you. And so, having patiently waited, he obtained the promise. For men swear by one greater than themselves, and with them an oath given as confirmation is an end of every dispute. In the same way, God desiring even more to show the heirs of the promise the unchangeableness of his purpose interposed with an oath so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie we who have taken refuge would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope set before us this hope we have as an anchor of our soul a hope both sure and steadfast, and one which enters within the veil, where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us, having become a high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. So the author of Hebrews has dropped some pretty heavy, heavy warning here. It is impossible for those who fall away to be renewed. Right, there's nothing that we can say. There's a hardness there. They're actually putting Christ back to open shame. And so the only thing that remains now is this sense of what God could do. And he tells that story about, you know, when the rain comes, the expectation of land would produce good fruit. And when it doesn't, the only thing that's left is for the land to be burned, for God to, to take and, and to to burn down all the thorns and the thistles so that good growth can come again. Heavy, heavy, heavy warning. And so I love what, what he says now is he comes back with these words, but beloved. My dad used to say you can get a lot farther with honey than you can with vinegar. The old saying is the idea that you often get more with praise and encouragement than with taking someone to task. In fact, one of the things that he taught me as a leader is you're going to have to have hard conversations. As a parent, as a leader, you, you sometimes have to, to kind of bring the Jesus moments into discussions. But whenever you do that, it's like going in for surgery, right? It's painful. You have to cut. You have to clean out. You have to do that. But whenever there's surgery, surgery, at the end of the surgery, what did they do? They begin to patch it up. They put the balm, they put the antibacterial to bring the healing. And one of the things he taught me is whenever you have to have these kind of discussions, don't leave them just with an open sore. Start bringing the balm so that there's healing. And this is exactly what's going on here. So in the midst of, hey, it is impossible if you fall away to be renewed because there's this hardness in your heart. You're actually putting Jesus, to, it's like you're crucifying him again. 
Ah, but beloved, we are convinced of better things of you. You see, God, even in that point, God is not against you. God, God is not in that point where he, he's, he's angry and he's just he's going to do this. You, you are beloved. You're part of the family of God. Even when God has to burn stuff down, how does, why does he do that? He does that because of love. This is exactly where he's going in Hebrews chapter 12. Whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. You have to understand that God is not working against you. It's that God wants your best. And so this reminder, beloved, and God is not unjust to not see what you are doing for him. Now, there's an interesting expression here in verse 9 I want to talk about. But love, beloved, we are convinced of better things concerning you and the things that accompany salvation. And we talked about this before. When you and I read the word salvation, we immediately think justification. That's the way our mind is trained because we, we, we talk about, hey, you need to get saved, right? You need to be justified. You need to be forgiven. You need to be, ha- have your sins washed away, made a part of the family of God. But the Greek term that is translated salvation doesn't mean justification. It simply means delivered. And so it's used for different meanings throughout Scripture. For instance, in Hebrews chapter 11, uh, he he uses the term salvation in relation to Noah and his family through the flood. They were delivered. They were saved by the ark. It's not not an eternal thing. It's not a, a spiritual thing. It was a physical deliverance. Obviously, you read the book of Romans, it's often talking about salvation as far as justification, that we have been saved, that we have been forgiven, we have been made a part of the family of God. Other places, it deals, though, with sanctification, that we are being saved, we are being delivered from the power of sin as we follow after Jesus. The fourth way that it's used is in a future deliverance, that one day you and I are going to be saved from all the stuff of this world. In the book of Hebrews, it has the idea of that day when we stand before Jesus and we, you know, our future salvation, and that's when we get to experience inheritance. And I mentioned before that when you look at how the author of the book of Hebrews uses it, In Hebrews 11, it's about that physical deliverance. But I think when we talked about this back in chapter 1, chapter 2, I said, I'm not sure that he ever uses it for justification. So we've been in this book now how many months, right? So I'm going to come back and amend that. I don't think he ever uses it to mean justification. Every time, I think what he's doing is he's pointing ahead. So you go back to chapter 1 when he talks about angels are here to serve those who will inherit salvation. It's the future. How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? The things to come, he says, is what I'm talking about. 
And even here, where, where is he going with this? He's talking about there in verse 11, the full assurance of hope until the end. Verse 12, patience so that you inherit the promises. So when he says the things here, that the things that accompany salvation, I don't think he's talking about justification and forgiveness. I think what he's talking about, the things that accompany when we are looking and living for that day that we will stand before Jesus. That we're living for that day of inheritance. Again, the context of this comes out of Hebrews chapter 4. That there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. That is talking about our inheritance of what is still there. And he says, listen, we are convinced of better things of you, beloved. We've seen the things that are consistent with living for that day. And what's the thing that he mentions? What he specifically mentions here in verse 10 is that you have shown love to Jesus' name by ministering to the saints, serving one another. And I don't know about you, but as I was thinking about this, my mind went to John chapter 13. So Jesus has gathered them in the upper room. He's told them one more time he's going to die. I think they get it this way. I'm going to go away. And he washes their feet and he sits down and he says, listen, I've got a new commandment for you that you love one another even as I have loved you. I'm leaving. You now have to be my hands and feet to one another. Do you remember what Jesus said? The one who wants to be great in the kingdom of heaven has to be the servant of all. And I think what he's trying to say here is, listen, we see this. You, you're living for that day, because, and you're showing it because you are being the hands and feet of Jesus to one another. You're serving one another. And that's one of the things that accompanies that view of living for that day, that future salvation. I pondered that for a while. You know, here in America, one of the issues that we run into um, in the church, the big C church, is, what, what's the old adage? 20% of the people do 80% of the work, right? Why is that? And, and I can't help but wonder if the problem is, is here in America, it's just life in so many ways is so good. We have freedom. We have prosperity. We, we have so much that it's hard for us to keep our eyes on that day. But you see, when we live for that day and we understand this world is not our home, that we are here and we are to be the hands and feet of Jesus, all of a sudden, we've got to serve. We've got to minister to the saints. Jesus said, I got this new commandment that you love one another. As I just washed your feet, you need to wash one another's. And those that will be great in the kingdom will today be the servant of all. It's a two-world view. 
And what he's saying to them in the midst of all this, because remember, this is a warning. The warning is this. We've seen it. You've ministered and you still continue to minister. But you've got to persevere. You've got to continue to walk in faith. Don't quit. Don't stop. Don't pull back. Remember, the, the heart of this is these people, these, these folks who were saved out of Judaism are facing persecution from the Romans. They're facing persecutions from the Jews. And so they're thinking about maybe just kind of stepping back, you know, not giving up on Jesus, but going back under the law to get out from under that. And his encouragement is, is no, you've got to continue on. You've got to persevere. It's hard. Because when you and I live for that day, when we live for the day when we will see Jesus, we really at that point are pushing against every norm of society. We're pushing against every current, every wind of society. Because, I mean, you think about it. The biblical view is that we're to live for that day. What does our world tell us? You got to live for today, right? You only live once. YOLO. <laughs> when we live for that day, what are we told? Well, today then we're going to deny ourselves, take up our cross and follow Jesus. Our world says, no, you got to live for yourself. What's going to make you happy? You got to find yourself. And because of that, it's hard. It's hard. People tell you you're crazy. People don't understand. Why, why would you do that? Why, why would you give your time to serve others? Why would you give your money away? Why would you, why would you do this? And so all, the, all of the current, all of the wind is against. And, and after a while, it gets, it gets tiresome. And I was trying to think about how I could maybe illustrate this. And as many of you know, uh, you know here at the church, we... we promote and try to get people to get part of Financial Peace University. Dave Ramsey's teach something that Tammy and I have done. And I was thinking about how this, uh, this semester we're actually doing an FPU group and we're really enjoying it. Wonderful people to be a part. But you know, one of Dave's sayings is this, financially you need to live like no one else today so that you can live and give like no one else tomorrow. And that is, if you're in debt, you got to do everything you can to get out of debt. One of his favorite sayings is, you should never see the inside of a restaurant unless you're working there, right? It's a great place to go when, when you're in debt and you don't have any money and that's to work. And so you work and you work and you work extra and you make a budget and you scrimp and you save and you deny yourself and you don't go on vacation. <gasps> But you live like no one else so that later you're out of debt. The money that comes in, you can deal with. You got a fully funded emergency fund. And now you can live and give like no one else, right? And it sounds so good. It's wonderful. You, you listen to people with debt-free screens. They, they had $100,000 in debt, and they paid it all off over a, a, you know, a year, two years, or three years. And sometimes you'll hear like three or $400,000, and sometimes six or seven years. And it was like, wow, how did you do that? And it's just, but it's amazing, right, to be free. 
But the reality is, is that for everyone who does a debt-free scream, there's probably two or three that started out with the, I need to do this, but it was hard. And they quit. We really need to get a, you know, so we, we start doing the budget, but man, I don't really want to cut there. And we really shouldn't be going out to eat, but we, we want to go out to eat. And so we started with great, but, the, but they quit. And, and so now they continue to live in debt. They continue, and they never get to this side of it. And this is just a matter for a year, two years, or three years. Think about this. What we're to do is we're to, to live today for that day, which is not three years down. Well, who knows? You know, maybe we're home with Jesus in three years. But, but, but it's a lifetime. And so that takes perseverance. It takes encouragement because the whole time we're pushing against the winds and the currents of our culture. This is, you need to live for you. You know this. You deserve this. And Jesus says, no, if you're going to follow me, you need to take up your cross. And so one day I'm going to stand before Jesus and I want to hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant. I'm going to stand before Jesus and I want, I, I want to receive a crown. I want my life to have been pleasing to him. Don't quit. Don't quit. And so this is what he's saying. And so we desire, verse 11, that each one of you show the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end so that you will not be sluggish. That's the same word he used back in chapter 5, verse 11, when he says, concerning him we have much to say, but it is hard to explain since you have become dull, dull of hearing. Don't become sluggish. It's so easy in the midst of all this. And can I remind you that the first step to falling away is not falling away. The first step to falling away is being sluggish. I mean, I, sadly, I've known my fair share of people who have turned away from following Jesus with their whole heart. And yet, in my life, I have yet to see or to know or to even hear the story of somebody who's passionately following Christ, living for that day, spending time with Jesus, serving people. And tomorrow, they get up and they say, you know what, I'm going to walk away from Christ. Never, ever have heard that story. Because how it happens is not that dramatic. It's sluggish. We get dull of hearing. It's a little bit at a time. You know, as a pastor, I get, I get articles sent to me literally right now every week. People trying to figure out what is happening within the church in America post-COVID. Where did so many of the people go? who are probably never coming back. The reality is, most of them didn't one day wake up in COVID and go, oh, I'm not going to follow Jesus anymore. How it happened was, they got sluggish. And that began a process in their heart. We were talking a little bit about this a couple weeks ago, and Rich Howland, if you know Rich, uh, he's a 
He's a philosophy professor down at GCU. So you want to get a headache, talk to Rich. He's a really smart dude. But Rich came up and he made the point, and I think he was dead on. That when you look at the book of Hebrews, like many other places, you know, we, you, honestly, the author only leaves you with one of two options. Either you are growing in your relationship with Jesus or you're moving away from him. There is no neutral place here. And so often as Christians, we kind of think, ah, oh, we're just going to hover around here. That's just not how it works. It's either growing and thriving and we're being diligent or we're moving away. And what we need then for the journey is his point here is we need faith and we need patience because it takes both. This isn't a day or two or a year or two that we live for that day. It is a lifetime when we fix our eyes on the fact that we're going to stand before Jesus and we continue to live for that day over and over and over. And the payoff is in verse 12 who through faith and patience inherit the promises. That's the payoff. That day when we get to hear and stand before Jesus and, you know, walk with him in white and hear him say, well done. Now, he gives an example here, and he gives an example of Abraham. I don't want to spend a lot of time because we're going to actually, this summer, we're going to take the, the people of Hebrews 11 and we're going to do some of the Old Testament stuff this summer uh, looking at the stories. But the point is this. God came to Abraham with a promise. He says, I'm going to bless you and I'm going to multiply you. What often we forget is best we understand that when God made that promise, Abraham was 75 years old. And Sarah was 65, not exactly spring chickens, right? Not exactly in that place of, hmm, this, this getting pregnant thing is going to be a really easy thing. And his point is this. When he made that promise to them, they didn't end up having to wait nine months for a baby or 18 months for a baby, or two years for a baby, or five years for a baby, they ended up having to wait 25 years. Abraham's faith had to be tied with patience. It has, to, it has to be tied with the fact that this world is our home. We're living for something down the line. In fact, I would argue with you, and I think that that's probably in the background of what the author is saying here, is that even in Abraham's day, like God also promised him the land. He never saw that part. There was a promise out there. And so, so his point is this, is that we as, as the children of God living for that day have got to take our faith and we've got to tie it with patience. But your faith is well-founded. And so when he talks about how God came and made the oath with him and God who is nothing greater than him, he makes the oath and he swears by himself. And then he uses this expression that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie. And to know what those two things are, you've got to see them in verse 17. God it says in the same way, God desiring even more to show the heirs of the promise, number one, the unchangeableness of his purpose. 
Isaac is going to be born. You know why? Because God has a purpose way down the line that through Isaac and then through Jacob and then through Judah, his son is going to be born into this world. It is the unchangeable purpose of God. Nothing was going to get in the way of that. Beyond that, God gave an oath. Remember, we've we've talked about how they sliced the animal and God went through it on his own. An unconditional covenant. Can I remind you that God has a purpose? His purpose is that you and I would one day rule and reign with him. That's been the heart of the book of Hebrews. You go back to Jesus now, is seated at the right hand of God, waiting for his enemies to be subjected to him. He's told us he did not subject the world to come to angels, but to men. And the, the leader of it all is the perfect God-man. And you and I are going to work. It is the unchangeable purpose of God. And oh, by the way, it's even better than that. He made a covenant with us through the blood of his son. That where Jesus is, there we would be also. And oh, by the way, God cannot lie. So our hope and our sense and our confidence is sure. And just like Abraham ultimately, 25 years down the line, received the promise. You and I, when we stand before Jesus, when we had lived this life for his glory, we will receive the promise. It's good. It's solid. And that's the goal. And this is how he wraps it up. Let's start with about halfway through verse 18, because this is so good. He says, we who have taken refuge would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope set before us. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast, and one which enters within the veil, where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us, We have a hope. We have that hope that one day we're going to stand before Jesus. One day that we are going to hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant, that we will rule and reign with him, that we will receive crowns, the victor's crowns, by the Lord himself. That we will hear those words of affirmation. And that is God's promise. That is our hope. That is what we are focused on. That one day we will be with Jesus and we will rule and we will reign. And that is our hope. And his whole point of that is then what becomes the anchor for our soul. In this world, we have all kinds of winds and currents that want to push us towards other things. Wants to focus on us, focus on this, focus on that, but that's our anchor. If you're a boat out on an anchor, when the wind comes and it's pushing against you, that anchor keeps you focused on where you're wanting to go. It keeps you aimed in the right direction. And the focus for our soul, the anchor for our soul, is that day that we stand before Jesus because Jesus is not of this world. Jesus has gone into heaven. Did you notice? He's entered the veil. All right? Veil. Temple. Not the temple here on earth. The temple in heaven. What was the veil to do? Keep people out of the presence of God. He's entered the veil for us, ahead of us. 
It's that day when in the New Jerusalem where we read that there is no temple for the Lamb is His temple. God will be with us and we will be His people. And there will be no need for light because God Himself will be the light. And we will walk with Him in white. And what He's saying is this, folks. We need to anchor our soul to Jesus. We need to live for that day when we will stand before him. To hear those words, we need to live like no one else today so that on that day we get to experience the joy of hearing his words of affirmation, his, his giving us reward so that we can give that to the praise of his glory. That's why we got to be diligent. That's why we can't become sluggish. That's why we can't become dull. That's why we have to give our whole heart to this thing. Because everything in this world is pushing us against and away from that as our goal. The writer of Hebrews said, listen, we have an anchor. An anchor for our soul, and it's Jesus. It's what leads us then to what I think is the theme of the book. Put as con condensed as quickly as possible in Hebrews 12. Fixing our eyes on Jesus. The author, the finisher of our faith who for the joy set before him, oh yeah, he needed patience, he needed endurance, he endured the cross, he despised the shame, but he has now sat down at the right hand of the throne on high, right? He is our anchor. He is our anchor. Focus our eyes on Jesus. Lean fully. You remember that old song, it will be worth it all. When we see Jesus, life's trials will seem so small when we see Christ. One glimpse of his dear face, all sorrows will erase. So bravely run the race till we see Christ. We have an anchor for our soul. It's Jesus. That's why we have to be diligent. To seek him, to know him. If you're here today and you've not come to put your faith in him, that's where it starts. Because that's where salvation is. Putting your faith in Jesus alone.